0: I'd like to uh, read a passage, uh, a few verses from 1 Timothy. This is a passage that we know, I think, but helps us to refresh our minds because we do have a responsibility in the area of prayer. So let me read these first few verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Father, we know that this whole world is in your hands. The Scripture teaches us that you raise up authorities and you take down authorities. And yet, Father, you've put us in a land where we have a democratic form of government, where we have been blessed in many ways. And Father, uh, often we're remiss in praying for our leadership. We do ask you for our president, that your hand will be upon uh, President Bush, that you will guide him in every decision that he makes in the leadership that he gives, that his life will um, witness to the faith that he claims uh, to have in you. I pray that he strugg- as he struggles with the various difficult issues that have to be worked out, that he will have the mind of God and will be able to ride out the storm because we have such large groups in this country who seem to be totally antagonistic to what, from our perspective, is right and good thinking and righteous and godly. So we just pray that you'll give him the strength to stand and, and to push forward and enough support to continue in His way from both other leaders in this country as well as the population. We pray for Congress that the leadership there will do what is right, and for those who are believers that they will live their witness before their uh, compatriots, the other members of Congress who do not know You. And for all those in leadership positions, we just pray that Your hand will be guiding and uh, accomplishing Your will. Father, I thank You for the Word that is before us, and uh, we, are, we read in your word that you are not willing that any should perish. The word is here that all might come to know you and to be transformed, and we desire, Lord, that our lives will bear fruit for you and shine forth the witness of Christ in all that we do. So, fill us in our hearts and minds with the truth from your word this day, and bless as it is proclaimed, in Christ's name we pray, amen. We are in 1 Samuel, and we've been studying in the 23rd chapter. And this morning I'd like to read beginning at verse 15. 1 Samuel 23, verse 15 through verse 18. Now David became aware that Saul had come up out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Haresh, and encouraged him in God. Thus he said to him, Do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you, and you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And Saul, my father, knows that also. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed at Haresh, while Jonathan went to his house. We began last uh, Sunday at the end of class to look at this passage, and we looked at the physical geography of the, of the land, and we'll touch on that a little bit more as we move along here this morning. The exact location of Horesh is unknown. As I've mentioned before, and as you've gathered from our studies and your own studies, there are many locations in Scripture <coughs> which cannot be s- certainly identified today. Partly because, of course, uh, this was the name of the place 3,000 years ago. Over those 3,000 years, uh, the land of Israel has been overrun by Assyrians and is overrun by Babylonians and Egyptians and Greeks and Romans and, and Turks and Arabs and Mongols and everybody else that you can think of just about. And as a result, through the time, uh, many villages and towns have been abandoned, uh, their sites have been lost. Uh, other ones, the Arabs live there, and so in the Arabic name, there's enough of the original Hebrew name to give a possible identification. Certain cities, of course, have never been lost. They've never lost Jerusalem or or Bethlehem or Nazareth or many of those because they've continued to be significant cities down through time. And particularly for the last 2,000 years, they have been preserved as places to which Christians would go on pilgrimages to the holy sites and so many places have been retained. But Horesh, nobody knows for sure where Horesh was. Apparently, as best we can tell, here's the city always to keep note as we're dealing with this particular chapter, Hebron. Hebron is the key or the principal city of of this whole region north of Beersheba of Israel here. Hebron is the largest city, the key city. Of course, you see it a lot in the news now because it's, uh, it's an Arab city, a Palestinian city, and there's always been a lot of trouble that goes on at Hebron. Every time we've been at Hebron, you get a little bit of a nervous feeling because uh, there aren't very many Jews in Hebron. They live in, in uh, these uh, places that have been built outside, and they're kind of fortified. Uh, and so you're in an all-Palestinian town, and uh, you know, you're an American. Americans tend to be pro-Israel, and so the Arabs look at you askance. And, is a bit of a nervous place to be, but it's an important town because that's where the cave of Machpelah is where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their wives with exception of Rachel are all buried. And so it's, it's very important to Christian, Jew, and Arab or Muslim. And so it, it's a significant site. So using Hebron as a reference point, what we're going to be talking about is going to all occur in, in this region right in here from Hebron, not as far south as Arad here, at the end of the chapter, we come to En Gedi over here. So right in through here, right about, is where we are. So Horesh was in there somewhere, probably out may- near the bottom of the D there in, uh, in Judah. It's all wilderness area. And again, an area where civilization has been rather transient because of the dryness of the region. While David was hiding there, the key to this passage, of course, is that Jonathan, enters the passage. Jonathan makes the last recorded visit between David and Jonathan at that particular time. Jonathan, of course, you remember, is the son of Saul. And Jonathan is so unlike his father, there could not be hardly a greater dissimilarity between Saul and Jonathan anywhere. And Jonathan has somehow slipped away from his home and away from the spies. Now, Saul knows that Jonathan loves David. So Saul is going to have people watching Jonathan all the time because he's going to know that Jonathan's going to try to make contact with David. So Jonathan probably had to do some pretty uh, fancy footwork to escape from being detected by the spies that Saul had around Jonathan. And then he had to somehow find David. And so he had to make contact with some trusted people who knew that Jonathan loved David, who was willing to lead Jonathan to where David was hiding in the wilderness there at Haresh. Why did he go? The scripture says, Jonathan went to encourage David in God. That's a powerful statement. He stood true to this covenant that he had made with David. And you go back to the 20th chapter and you could read the covenant there that David and Jonathan had made with each other, that they would defend and protect each other and stand on behalf of each other. And this is amazing because Jonathan knew That David was going to usurp the throne. That when Saul died, David was to be the next king instead of himself, Jonathan. And yet he favors David. And he's willing to support David in that. Why? Because he knows it is the will of God. And that is really the amazing thing here. The godliness of this man looms very large in these chapters of 1 Samuel. Jonathan is one of the truly men of God. Great men of God in the Scripture. You know, a a great compatriot for David. Now, David, of course, is weary. He's been pursued at every turn, chased from pillar to post by, by Saul, and discouraged. He's discouraged because although God has promised him the throne of Israel, you will inherit the throne. It's been a long time, and it's been many years, and he's been running from Saul. And he's unable to trust his own countrymen. Remember, even after he went down and saved the people from the attack of the Philistines, God said, these people will turn you over to Saul if push comes to shove. And so he cannot even trust those he has saved from enemy attack. And he's living out in the desert with a whole group of malcontents. 600 individuals who are all joined with him because they can't live in the society in which they are at that time. They're upset with the government or with somebody. And so they're, they're all here with David, you know, like we talked about last time, very much like Robin and his, quote, merry men, except these are grumpy men <laughs> that he is with at this particular time. And uh, these malcontents are becoming uglier in their mood every day because what are they getting for following David? Chased all over the countryside. They're hungry. They're thirsty. What is the reward? Well, they haven't seen anything yet. So David is uh, feeling pretty bad here. He's depressed. He's down. He's discouraged. God has made this promise, but I can't see it happening. There's no reality to it yet. Of course, that's what faith is all about. But when your faith is assaulted from every corner, sometimes it takes a little encouragement from someone else. And so that's what Jonathan came to do. We have to remember, even though it's not spelled out for us here, like it is in Job. You know, it says Satan was up in heaven, and he talked about Job, and then he went down and did all this to Job. We're not told that there, but Satan is here. If Satan's active anywhere in the world, he's active right here because this is where the action is. Satan knows where the action is. You know, he knows where the Word of God is being proclaimed. He's not going to be, he's not spending his time down in Skid Row. He doesn't need to be down there. I mean, They're already on their way down the tube. He's off where things are happening for God. And, and so Satan is there whispering in David's ear and saying, yeah, you've got a reason to be discouraged because, you know, l- look at what's happening. You're, you're being chased. Maybe what you ought to do is give up and hope that Saul will have mercy on you. I think he was saying to David, if God is really going to bless you and really give you to give you the throne, why is all this happening to you? Why are not good things happening? Why don't you see the hope being realized? I think he was saying to David, that the reason you're not seeing it happen is because God does not keep His promises. Why? Because He's unable to and He's a fickle God. Now, we all know that's not true. But Satan, I'm sure, was whispering that in David's ear. And certainly all of us have been tempted from time to time to think, will God really do what He's promised? I think all of us can say, God can do whatever He will. But there's a difference between can and will do. And that's where the the big hang up is. And certainly that's what was, what Satan was pressing into David's ear at this time. So what does God know? God knows that David is going through tremendous spiritual warfare. So what does God do? He sends one of his agents of blessing into David's life. He sends Jonathan. I don't think Jonathan just woke up one day and says, oh, I think I'll go visit David. No. I think he felt there was an urge. There was a need. Uh, David needs me. And, and so he decided to try to make contact with David because it says he went to encourage David in God. He had a purpose before he even left home. Now, in order for Jonathan to be effective in this ministry, he has to be willing to hear the word of God in the first place, to hear God speaking to him. And then he has to be willing to obey. And then thirdly, He has to be prepared to be able to minister. One of the prayers that um, my wife and I often pray is that God will enable us to be a channel, a conduit through which God can move to bless people. In myself, I can't bless anybody, but God can bless through us. That that word of encouragement that you give to one another, that pat on the back, whatever it might be, I think is ultimately inspired by God. As it comes from one believer to another believer or, or even maybe to a, to a non-believer. Jonathan was sent to minister to his friend. And you and I are sent to minister to our friends, our neighbors, to whomever that God brings into our path that day, this hour. And we need to hear and to obey and we need to be prepared in heart that we might truly bless one another. There there are some passages in the New Testament that speak to this, and let me just read a couple of them. There are many, but let me read uh, from the sixth chapter of Galatians, a passage there that seems to highlight this truth. Galatians chapter 6, the first uh, 10 verses here. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you, too, be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work. Then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one shall bear his own load. Notice that duality here. We're to carry one another's burdens, but we're to carry our own burdens too. We don't just dump our burdens on somebody else and expect them to do the whole thing. Oh, we can cast our cares upon the Lord, but we don't cast them all on somebody else and expect them to do the whole thing. But to share, to help, to encourage. And let each one who is taught the word share all things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. This is a strong passage on perseverance. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We have a responsibility to each other. That's one of the reasons why it's good for us to get to know each other within a smaller group context. You know, the people who just come to the big service and then disappear out the door and have no other contact, how, how can such a person minister to others? Don't even know anybody else. But but it's important to be within a small group context. Many of you are in TLC groups where this happens a lot, and uh, this is an important thing for us to, to keep in mind. We have a responsibility to each other, just as Jonathan had to David. And of course, part of that responsibility is to be prepared in our hearts to be used by God. And then in Second uh, Corinthians, the first chapter, we read these words beginning at verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You've heard that uh, much. I think it was even mentioned uh, in, in the service last week or sometime recently anyway. When God comforts us, when we're going through a difficult time, part of the purpose for that is for us to be prepared to do what Jonathan did for David and to provide comfort to others out of that storehouse that God has put into our lives. And so we have that mutual responsibility and hopefully part of our, uh, the, the, the fact that we at the end of class take some time to pray for one another and for the special needs that are brought up, that that is part of this ministry. Verse 5 For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. An example. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers in our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. You know, the scripture tells us in another place that if one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts, and a major part of our role in that is, of course, prayer. But also, where possible, to also provide words of encouragement and comfort, as Jonathan is doing here for David. So you and I have a responsibility as part of the body of Christ to minister to each other. Now, it's, it's not just a serendipity thing. It's, it's our responsibility. We're all linked together. Uh, just like, you know, the cells in your hand are linked to the cells in your foot. Uh, it's all linked together. And so we are to each other. And so Jonathan is empowered by God to share these words. And, and, and what, a, what a person to do it. The man whom David is going to replace. The one who will not get the throne... Because David is getting the throne, and he's the very one who comes to comfort David. That's a God thing. That's not human at all, you know, in the sense of natural human thing, reaction. That's a work of God. If you notice verse 17 of the passage in 1 Samuel 23, Jonathan says to David, Do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. David's been running from Saul, and we're going to come to the end of the chapter, and he almost gets caught. And yet, Jonathan says to David with confidence, Saul's not going to find you, and you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And my father knows that, and that's why he's so upset. He's more upset than Jonathan. Jonathan's not upset at all. Jonathan's personal commitment to David is emphasized by the words, and I will be next to you. I will be next to you. I am next to you now, and I will be next to you then. This is implying, of course, that he is first to support David's claim to kingship. He, the heir to the throne, will stand there and proclaim David to be the king. And then he implies, I will be next to you, sort of like your right-hand man. I will be second under you to carry out your will. Talk about humility. Talk about a man who's got a handle on godliness. It's this man, Jonathan. In fact, in some ways, almost in a superior way to David, it would seem. How wonderful it is to find people who are willing to wholeheartedly support God's call and plan, even if it means they will not be in the limelight. Our natural human desire, not everybody's, but most human desires, to have sort of center stage, to to be acknowledged as somebody. And yet, Jonathan is willing to step aside from what in the world would be his rightful position and yield it to God's choice because he wants God's choice above all things else. And that needs to be our attitude in all things. That we want God's will, even if it means we are displaced from a place of priority and put into a secondary position. Well, Jonathan's ministry to David is like rain in the desert to David's parched soul. And what we discover is that they were in such accord that they quickly and easily made a new covenant with each other. Now it's possible that it was simply a reaffirmation of the covenant that you read about in the 20th chapter But it could be a fresh agreement, a new agreement, a new direction in which they will stand together until God fulfills his promise of raising David up to be king of Israel. Unfortunately, Jonathan will not see this. That's one of the sad things about it. Of course, Jonathan will die before David will will gain the throne. But uh, God does all things well. And I'm sure when, when David got to heaven, Jonathan was waiting for him and they embraced and and spoke of the good times they had together. How long did Jonathan stay with David? I don't think he stayed long because he knew if he was gone long, there's going to be a lot of suspicion. He had somehow eluded the secret police, you know, the Saul's Gestapo, and got out here to see David. But he didn't want to be gone too long because there's going to be a lot of suspicion raised. Well, where have you been, Jonathan, you know, kind of deal. And so I think he he went back uh, as soon as possible. Let's read uh, at verse 19. Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds at Horesh on the heel of Hakila, which is in the south of Jeshamun? Now then, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to do so, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. Oh, David has some more friends here. And Saul said, May you be blessed of the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Poor Saul. Go now and make more sure and investigate and see his place where his haunt is and who has seen him there, for I am told that he is very cunning. (laughs) So look and learn about all the hiding places where he hides himself and return to me with certainty and I will go with you and it shall come about if he is in the land that I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. Then they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. Now David and his men were, were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, to the south of Jeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, and he came down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard of it, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were surrounding David and his men to seize them. But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry, come up, for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went to meet the Philistines. Therefore they called the place the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and stayed in the stronghold of En Gedi. The men of Ziph. Here's Hebron. Out of Hebron, two roads branched to the south. One road branches this way towards Debir. They've got Debir a little too far over here. It's more like about right there. The road comes down here and down to Beersheba. And then it goes all over to Egypt. That's the ridge route. It's not the main route, but it's the main route through the highlands. (coughs) The main route is along the coast. It's called the Via Maris, the way of the sea. That was the primary route, sort of the I-5 of that part of the world was through here. And it went up this way and over towards, up, up this way and over to Damascus. But there was a secondary route, sort of the Highway 99 here, uh, that went up this way and connected Jerusalem and Gibeah and Bethel and all the way up to the north. And so, out of Hebron, you have one road that branches this way, but there was a secondary road that went to Arad. <laughs> ask, when, when Dr. Walmark's around sometime, ask him about Arad, <laughs> he'll give you a good description of Arad. I mean, talk about a desolate place. Arad's out in the middle of nowhere. And we were there in January once, and it was frozen. But anyway, Arad here, Uh, on that road, on that secondary road, right about five miles south of Hebron is the city of Zeph. Zeph, Z-E-P-H. And then five miles south of that is the city of Maon. To the east from those two cities, the wilderness adjacent to the city carries the name of the cities. So the wilderness of Zeph, the wilderness of Maon. Just little portions of this greater Judean desert here, stretching out to the east from those cities. So the men of Ziph have decided they're going to ingratiate themselves with King Saul. And so uh, they went and ratted on David. Now this is an illustration of a major problem David had. He couldn't even trust his own fellow Judeans to keep his hiding place a secret from Saul, who's not a Judean. He's a Benjamite. He comes from the tribe of Benjamin. He's from up north. Why why are they going up to rat on, on David to him? Well, you know who's behind it. The same one that was whispering into Saul's ear, I mean into David's ear, give up because it's all over, God can't help you now. Well, the same one was whispering into the ear of the Ziphites. And so they go to to tell on, who was David? David had hero status in the land. He had defeated Goliath. He had led Israel into many victories over the Philistines. And he's hiding out in the wilderness because uh, Saul is unrighteously seeking him. And these people go and tell on him. It's a lot like the world we live in, isn't it? Who can you really trust out there, especially of the people of the world who are not of the church? Unfortunately, there are times you can't even trust some of the people of the church. That's really sad. But, but most people are out, are out for themselves, and they don't give a rip about you. And so if tramping on you is an advancement for them, they'll do it. And so they go to tell on Saul. What I mean on David. They go to Saul to tell on David to tell about his secret hiding place. Saul didn't go down there to Ziph and say, all right, I'm going to cut your heads off. You don't tell me where David is. No. On their own, they go 30 miles from Ziph here. They had to follow the road all the way up through Bethlehem, Jews, up to Gibeah. It's 30 miles. They had to go 30 miles in order to tell Saul that David's down here hiding in our territory. Why? That they were expecting a reward, of course. They expected some kind of reward for this. Now, they were fairly specific about his hideout, uh, but not specific enough for, for Saul. Saul wanted to know exactly, you know, get out your global positioning device and you show me exactly, well, you know, that kind of idea. They wanted to know where he was. Uh, Saul wanted to know exactly where he was. The strongholds of Horesh were on the hill of Hakilah, as we read in that passage there, uh, which is in the southern porth- portion of the Jeshimon. Now again, these words don't mean anything until you look at the overall uh, view of things. As I mentioned to you last time, all along this area here is a wilderness. It's dry, there's some grass there, but there's virtually no large vegetation. A lot of ravines which drop very steeply off into the Dead Sea here. It's a really rugged, rather wild territory in here. This is where the lion and the bear and other things that David killed trying to keep his sheep safe dwelled. The, the word that, that you see in this particular passage, Jeshimon, the word means desert. But in this passage, in the Hebrew, it's the Jeshimon, which means the desert. So when it says the desert, it's referring specifically to the wilderness of Judea, the more generic name, Wilderness of Judea. So we're, we're talking about this area in here, and it says the southern portion of it. So that means you're down south of Hebron, You're in this quadrant right down in here. That's specifically what that is saying. Most of you probably are familiar with a desert in northern Africa called the Sahara. Well, the word Sahara in Arabic means desert. It's it's just a a non-proper noun, desert with a small d. But when it's the Sahara, it means specifically the big desert in northern Africa, so jeshimon means desert, but when it's the Jeshimon, it means this specific area right in here. So that's where David is hiding. And that's where the men from Ziph have come to tell Saul that they will help him capture David. We'll not only tell on him, but we'll help you capture him. Nice guys. Saul was so delighted. Oh, somebody loves me. He says, may you be blessed of the Lord for you have had compassion on me. Again, we can see uh, at least spiritual blindness here uh, in the eyes of of Saul here because he is blessing people who are acting in in contradiction to the will of God. Blessing people who are ratting on David whom whom God has proclaimed to be the next king of Israel. But I think, of course, it's just a natural reaction of Saul, Saul as It has had for many people the phrase, may you be blessed of the Lord, was probably just an expression. And it was void, uh, in his mind anyway, of any meaning, real meaning, or any piety. He wasn't really saying, oh, thank God, the God of heaven and earth, the God who is mine, that you have done. No, he's not saying it. He's just spitting it out, you know, may God bless you uh, for this. And he's not even thinking about it. Saul had felt that no one loved him. First of all, because his own son... His heir loves David, whom Saul hates. Secondly, his own counselors, he said, were not even trying to help him catch David. And third of all, the priests of Nob had helped David, and then when he ordered his own soldiers to kill the priests, they wouldn't do it. Nobody loved him in his own mind. And so, he's so happy. These people have come 30 miles out of their way without any pressure to tell on David. Although he was delighted with the Ziphites' offer, He was not interested in another wild goose chase. He's had enough of those already. He knew from experience. He says, I have heard that that David is cunning. Well, that's kind of a silly way to put it. He knew that David was totally elusive. Why was David elusive? Because God was preserving him. So he instructs the men uh, from Ziph to find out exactly where David's hideouts are. I want a map. And I want to know exactly where his hideouts are, and I want to know who's there, who knows about it, and how many men he has. I want all this information. And then, if you bring me all that information, I'm willing to put out the effort to search for David and attempt to capture him. So the men of Ziph went home to spy on David. David can't even trust these people who live close, nearby. He's probably bought food from them. Cannot trust them. David, I think, was stung by this. And I think this was one of the major motivators for him to write the 54th Psalm in which he makes it quite clear there's only one he can trust. There is only one he can trust. That's the Lord himself. Psalm 54, which specifically at the heading says, uh, David wrote this when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, is not David hiding among us? Save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your power. Hear my prayer, O God, give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, and violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. He will recompense the evil to my foes. Destroy them in your faithfulness. Willingly I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord for it is good, for he has delivered me from all trouble, and my eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. It's kind of a little bit of an imprecatory prayer, one of those prayers in which uh, David prayed that God would judge David's enemies, because in effect David's enemies were God's enemies. So you, You can just understand the aloneness David felt, because the only people around him were these hoodlums that had gathered with him, and any one of which probably would stab him in the back if it was to their advantage, and, and so he felt so alone. So he wrote this, this psalm, and I think some of us at times can relate to this psalm, maybe more frequently than we'd like to admit. Well, in the meantime, David, of course, is not just saying, oh, well, uh, God's going to take care of me. I'm just going to sit here and let the sun rise and sink and, and do nothing. David was locating other hiding places, locating other hiding places. He thought, well, you know, Saul's going to be after me. The men of Ziph are going to rat, have ratted on me, so I, I'd better find some other places as, as a place to go in case. And so, he searched out further south in the wilderness of Maon. Now, Maon was another small village uh, only about five miles f- further south from Ziph, so about 10 miles south of Hebron, and, and the wilderness out over in this direction from there. So, he's out there finding another, hiding place, some more strongholds to which he can flee. And so when Saul finally came to try to uh, capture David, David and his men fled out of the wilderness of Ziph and fled into the rock stronghold of the wilderness of Maon. Saul then said, okay, I can play this game, and so he chases David down into the wilderness of Maon. Scripture says that fled into the area of the Ereba. The Ereba is the downfaulted area here in which you find the, the Dead Sea. In German, there's a word named Graben, which if you know German, you know that means grave. Um, in, the, in geology, uh, the term Graben has been adopted. There's a lot of German words in, in geological terms because of the uh, scientific orientation of the German mind. But uh, it means a down area. There are faults on both sides here of this. And, and so whenever there's movement, this part in between drops in elevation. And that's why the Dead Sea now is 1300 feet below sea level, below world sea level. Uh, it's in, a, it's in a, the deepest po- place on the surface of the earth. There's no place on the surface of the earth where you can still breathe air and be lower than at, on the surface of the Dead Sea. Now, if all the water were taken off the earth, you, you of course, could go further down. But uh, that's the deepest place where you can still breathe air. And and so this this is known as the Araba. All the way down, there's this uh, fault zone, rift zone, extends all the way down to the Red Sea, and the Red Sea is in that same rift zone. It goes all the way down to Ethiopia, then it cuts right through the Ethiopian highlands and goes down through East Africa, and it's known as the Great East African Rift. It's all the same thing. And, and so the Arabah is the specific term that refers to this area right in here. So he has come across the wilderness of Meon into the actual, he's gone down the slopes towards the Dead Sea, in other words. <clears throat> Saul pursued David in this wilderness, and he was nearly successful. In the surrounding, uh, as he came into the area, he finally spotted David, And the scripture says that Saul and his men were on one side of the mountain. David and his men were on the other side of the mountain. We don't know what mountain that is. It was probably one of the mesas that are in that area there. And Saul had a lot more men, so he was coming around the mountain to trap David. And that's the scenario at the end of the chapter. David is nearly trapped by Saul and his men. And how happy Saul was. He's there. I've got him. I've got more men than he. I'm going to surround him. I'm going to capture him. And then suddenly a courier comes trotting into camp saying, oh, by the way, Saul, the Philistines have invaded our land. Ah! Talk about frustration. I'm sure Saul was about ready to pull out whatever hair he had left. And B, I finally got David trapped, and now this is happening, and and this is a greater threat to me than David is, so I've got to go do with that. Oh, oh, man. I'm sure Saul was about ready to... um, have a serious, serious breakdown of one sort or another. We have been pursuing David for years and now he's about to have him. But, but who's in this? Who is in this? Think of how God plans ahead. I mean, God can rescue us by a myriad of means. He's not limited to what we might think is the route he's got to deliver us by. But notice God's timing. He had the, inv- the Philistines invade Israel at the right time so that the courier who told about the invasion would arrive just at the moment when Saul's about ready to close the trap on David. <laughs> That's how God works. In the Proverbs, we read, the wicked are filled with trouble. Saul's life was filled with trouble because he was actively resisting the clear word of God, which he had heard through the prophets. And every time he tried to capture David, he met with frustration, he met with anxiety, and he met with humiliation. Well, so delighted were David and his men that, you know, oh no, we're about to be trapped and suddenly Saul and his men all disappear. (laughs) You know, it's kind of like uh, when the Indians are about closing in and suddenly you hear the cavalry uh, horn blowing, you know, and you're going to be rescued, in the movies anyway. They, They were so happy that they called the mountain the Rock of Escape. Was just about the mountain of doom for them. Uh, the word for rock, which is used in that passage, rock of escape, is a word that usually means cleft, uh, a kind of a cave in, in a rock. But in, in Hebrew, they te- tend to use the different words interchangeably, synonymously. So the word for cleft and the word for mountain can be interchanged and used in, in such a way. And this is often done as a metaphor for God. And we see this specifically, and uh, bring this to a close here today. Let me just read a, a few verses from Isaiah 44, where we see this metaphor being used in verse 6 of Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God beside me. And who is like me, let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nation, let them declare to me the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Uh, do not tremble, do not be afraid. Have I not long, not long since announced it to you and declared it to you, that you are my witnesses? Is there any God beside me, or is there any rock I know not of one? There is only one rock. And we, of course, know that rock, the rock Christ Jesus, And and Paul speaks of it in the New Testament. And this is the rock of escape. This is a direct allusion to God as our rock of escape, David's rock of escape. He knew that it was God who had delivered him from Saul's trap. Men plan, but God executes. And that's what happened here. In Psalm 71, we read, Be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come, you have given commandment to save me. You are my rock and you are my fortress. Well, we're told at the end of the chapter that after that close call, David escaped to En Gedi. <laughs> he decides, I'm not going to hang around down here in the wilderness of Mayo. I'm going up here to En Gedi. En is a beautiful place. We'll talk about it on, next time we have class. We'll look at En Gedi. We'll talk about En Gedi. It's a beautiful place. It's one of the more delightful places actually in all of Israel. And this is where David will go to hide and where Saul will again chase him and, And be humiliated once more by the God of Israel.